Hello and welcome to the Sonic Cinema Podcast. My name is Brian Scuttle. Thank you for joining me at www.sonic-cinema.com as well as the Sonic Cinema Podcast YouTube channel. You can join us whenever you can subscribe wherever you uh, listen to podcasts at Apple, Google, Spotify, Good Pods. Always rate and review us and uh, all that helps. And I know we've been doing fairly decently with Good Pods uh rankings as far as a film podcast so i appreciate everybody listening over there and that in but if you go to the song cinema podcast youtube channel you also get quick take reviews of films like empire of light my review for elvis is there as well as other films that i might cover at uh film festivals i'm not doing sundance this year in part because i've got way too much going on, but um, I do have a couple of film festivals I definitely plan on attending, and you'll see more quick takes from me from those film festivals in the future. You can also check us out at patreon.com backslash sonic cinema. They're the uh, kind of the cornerstone of the Patreon right now is leaving the collection, and what that is is a uh, series that I started last year where I look at a movie from my film collection and I give it one last spin and I do a quick review basically explaining why I originally got the review, the film, and why I feel like its time has passed in my collection. That's at patreon.com backslash sonic cinema. If you uh, follow the podcast, you will notice that we only did one episode of the established classic series last year and part of that was scheduling on uh, my part it just got way too hectic at the end of the year and but that being said I did want to start 2023 with the established classic series for those of you who may not remember we basically my guests and I look at three films from Hollywood's golden age which I'm basically doing from the 30s to 1960 and we look at three films from that era and we basically give them quick little reviews of our personal affection for them and you know kind of kind of discuss whether they are still part of that canon and i think one of the things i like about this set of three that we're going to be doing today in particular is that one of them is one that is definitely going to be one that you recognize immediately as an all-time classic. and But the other two, they don't quite have the same reputation, at least in the public consciousness, as much as they do with uh, film, film fans. And so that's part of the reason why I wanted to choose those two films in addition to the third one. Join me, as he always has, on the Established Classic series as an actor who we have talked to many times about many different types of films, including his own, is uh, Timothy J. Cox. Tim, thank you very much for joining me. Thank you, Brian. It's great to be back. <clears throat> it is, uh, it's been a, it's been a while. I think it's the, the that last uh, established classics was the last time we really had a chance to talk. Um, yeah. What have, what have you had going on recently? Uh, let's see. Uh, you know, it, it, it has been nice to be able to get back to uh, to work. Uh, I have a, a horror film that's uh, called Protonopia, which I work on with my frequent collaborator, Matthew Mailer, that's hopefully coming out uh, 
in the next couple of months. Um, another feature film that I worked on here in Ohio called The Dirty People that is also uh, going to be coming out uh, in 2023. And um, you know, a, a short film called uh, Ready Cash, where I play a, a cult leader that's uh, set to come out in the next couple of months. So a lot of things uh, coming out, but also like the typical life of an actor, you know, it's just auditions, auditions, auditions. Yes. Um, and I, I know especially that uh, re-collaboration with you with uh, Martin Matthew Mailer, uh, I, I know I've reviewed a couple of films that you've been in from him, and I, I, he, he's a filmmaker I really, I really enjoy watching, so I'll, I'll, be, I'll be really uh, excited to see that one from you. And I, I do promise we'll have more short films from Tim coming up on the uh, website as far as reviews. But today we are talking about classic films. And the three, like I said, the three films chosen today, I, I chose because one of them I haven't actually seen in a while. One is one of those true all-time classics, much like Casablanca, much like Citizen Kane that we talked about. And then another one is, I do think it's a classic, but one that is not as familiar to people outside of film fans. But I, I think it kind of should be. And it's it's really kind of interesting the way it still speaks to modern, uh, modern day, even though it was made in the 50s. But we're going to start <laughs> off with probably the lightest of the bunch, and that is 1941's Sullivan's Travels, directed by Preston Sturgis, starring Joel McRae and Veronica Lake. And Tim, when was your first experience watching this movie? Uh, probably about uh, 25 years ago. I, had, I watched the film when on AMC, when it was still known as American Movie Classics, when Bob Dorian was the host. Uh, and... Um, I uh, I had heard that it was a classic. I, of course, had seen The Lady Eve and The Great McGinty and, you know, knew of uh, Preston Sturges, but knew that this was the one that was kind of regarded as uh, his masterpiece, although it was not, I think it was only a moderate success when it came out, but in the years since it has been regarded like I think it's George Clooney's favorite movie. And you could, you could kind of see when, you know, a movie, a satire about the film industry um, you know, you think of movies that like, like the player may have sprung from this or uh, even, you know, you know, anything that Christopher Guest has done. I mean, like all kinds of movies that kind of not necessarily poke fun at Hollywood, but kind of put Hollywood, uh, you know, I guess make them have, them have to answer the big questions about life rather than before making a, stepping out and making a movie. Yeah. And it's it's funny because of the fact that you know you you brought up uh, AMC and yeah I mean I'm sure this is where that that or TCM or where I first watched the film off off of recording it off of one of those two channels, but um yeah it's 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 hard to remember a time when AMC really did mean American movie classics <laughs> it wasn't just known as the channel of The Walking Dead and yeah. uh, you know it's. It, Turner Classic New Movies basically took over that classic movies channel. And I, I think they do a fantastic job curating it. But certainly AMC at that time in the 
90s definitely did that well is also. Um, I think this one first came into mind for me around the around the 90s. I mean, part of it was the uh, initial AFI Grace Films list because it was one of the films that was not on the list that a lot of people yeah. should have been. Um, but also, you mentioned George Clooney. Uh, I think one of this movie's big claim to fame is it kind of, there's a line in this movie that kind of inspired one of George Clooney's uh, collaborations with the Coen brothers, and that is, of course, Oh Brother, Where Art Thou? Yeah. And that one, of course, goes on a completely different tangent in adapting Homer's Odyssey, and it's it's a movie that I think, especially for Coen brothers fans, I mean, it was certainly a commercial success, but wasn't, you know, if you ask a lot of Coen Brothers fans, I think they might put it, like, a bit lower on their list with them. But at the same time, I, I think it gets to... I think it kind of gets to the heart of what uh, McRae's director is trying to do and in in a weird way, in the way it approaches it. Yeah, I, I think... The thing that makes this movie so wonderful is that, uh, one, you know, Joel McRae is an actor who was primarily known for, you know, Westerns, and uh, and this was probably the best part that he ever had, and it really showed, like, uh, you know, an incredible, a lighter side to him. And uh, the, the thing about the movie is that... Um, 1941 it still feels fresh like watching it again yeah. it felt like that this could happen like it, it this movie could come out today and audiences would would like it um that it could be like an alexander payne film or uh the coen brothers or noah bombach could do something uh you know could have like that and have that kind of uh story where it, it could still resonate with audiences and that's really the mark of a of a, of a great film I was actually trying to find when it was exactly this film kind of became kind of started being regarded, and I, I also I I did find that it was not on the AFI list, which was maddening. And as a matter of fact, it's not it's not on a couple of those like long lists. Which you look at the comments and you'll see Sullivan's where Sullivan's travels mentioned in there a couple of times. So yeah. it has resonated and still does resonate with an audience, which again, that's the mark of, of a true classic. Well, and it's one of those movies that really is you, you can understand why it might resonate more with filmmakers than it does with audiences because of the fact that it is in its own way, it's about Hollywood. But one of the things that I like about it is that it, it really is kind of, it is really kind of cynical about Hollywood because of the fact that yeah. it approaches, you know, Joel McRae's filmmaker, he wants to make a socially conscious film that really speaks to the common person living through the Great Depression at the time. Mm -hmm. And, you know, he, he doesn't recognize, and he doesn't recognize the value of the films he makes, which are predominantly comedies, to the average person. He thinks, oh, he wants to see, oh, they want to see people, they want to see movies about them. They want to see movies about suffering, yeah. But, you know, one of the things that 
one of my favorite lines of dialogue in this movie, which honestly it it gets to the heart of the movie, is that he basically so he basically takes this crazy idea of okay, so I'm going to go to the wardrobe apartment department. I'm going to basically dress like a hobo, and I'm going <laughs> to go on the road. I'm going to have like ten cents to my name, and I'm going to go on the road and see what people what the common person does and to gain that life experience. Yeah. And, and I love the, I, I love that his, his servant, his Butler is somebody who he's, he's trying to talk him out of it because he's like, you know, they don't necessarily want you to what you, what you have to offer. They don't want what they, they don't. And I buy what you're selling. Yeah. Yeah. Exactly. And uh, he he has misadventures when he goes tries to go out on the road. And one of my favorite moments is when you when you see the bus behind him of all the reporters, <laughs> yeah. and stuff like that, all the reporters and producers and all that. It's like uh, it. You can tell just how quickly this is going to go off the rails. And then he finds himself back in Hollywood at one point, and he finds. He says it's a funny thing how everything keeps shoving me back to Hollywood, and that's basically mm-hmm. the thesis of the entire movie. Where yeah, he, he basically everything that he does to try to 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 try to connect with common people who are going to see his movies. He what he's real what he needs to realize is that there's a reason people connect with their move his movies. And yeah, the escapism, to, yeah. Yeah, and it gets to that whole idea that <clears throat> people don't necessarily want to see serious movies about serious subjects. They want to see movies that take them away from their uh problems for two and a half hours or two yeah. hours. And and I, I I think it's 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 a really beautiful love letter to movies and the power of movies, even the lighter ones. And I I think that's one of the things that Sturgis does so well in this film. Well, and it's something that Sturgis do, did in, in all of his films. He always snuck in, like, the one thing that all of his characters and all of his films is that they're always on a journey of, for self-discovery. And I think that is like, you know, if when like when we go to the movies, we 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 will go we go to see you know a movie that and a good movie like will will surprise you. I'm like, wow, I I am like that. I I'm like that guy. Oh, you know, I relate to that. And it's like he he brings it back to you know hinting to the audience that uh, you know the movies and what you're going through are really not that not that different like it's all the same stories and all the same problems and you know especially during that time we of course were in world war one and you know uh you know so and things were you know changing within the country and 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 Sturges just had that he just had that whimsical you know way of like just pointing to the audience that like you know i don't know like you know just keep the faith. I think that's the thing. It's like, and of course, you know, watch, you know, for Joel McRae's character, you know, he grows and I think hopefully it, it, it will make him a better filmmaker, but also I think it's made him a more well-rounded uh, person, which is kind of like 
the one thing that, you know, I always say, you know, when you're an actor, it's important, you know, to young actors when they're starting out, it's important to have as well-rounded a life as possible because that, of course, will help, yeah. you know, in characters and, in, you know, no matter what kind of characters you play. So this journey for Joel McRae character, it makes him a better person and it makes him a better director, hopefully. Yeah, I mean, I, I definitely think uh, anybody, anybody in the arts, I mean, certainly, I, I understand certainly where you're coming, what you're uh, talking about when it comes to being an actor, how you, you know, living off of, building off of your personal experiences as far as building characters. I, I mean, even even watching movies and critically analyzing movies, I, I think is having some personal experiences is, definitely important i think to understand the value of movies i mean even you know and not just the ones that are serious about serious subjects but also the ones that approach life in a lighter in a lighter way i i think <laughs> you know it's like watching something like say ticket to paradise earlier this uh with the julie roberts george clooney romantic sure comedy. it's like you know if even if you haven't had that experience as a loved one of somebody who's getting married or as somebody is trying as somebody who's trying to get married you are going to uh can there's probably something about that film that you're going to connect with there's something about that relatability yeah uh you know and even something like say uh like say Empire of Light, the Sam Mendes film, which I mean it, mm -hmm. I'm not a huge fan of, but I do recognize that there's part of parts of me in that movie that really connects with what those characters are going through because I've lived that life in movie theater. I've worked at movie theaters and it's like I understand that feeling that they get. Mm -hmm. It uh I mean a movie like Sullivan's Travels is why I, it, it, it was just a reminder of why I love the movies because, you know, it, it kind of puts, it kind of puts a mirror up to Hollywood in a very satirical fun and still very, I mean, relevant way. I mean, uh, it, it would be, it would be kind of fun if this were remade to me, like in modern day, like with social media and uh, you know, all of that kind of stuff. Like it would be an interesting attack. I mean, I don't, I, when I was watching the movie, I often wonder, I says, God, what would Preston Sturges make of like, you know, the modern world, you know, like politics and things like that. I mean, he would, he'd have a lot of material to work with. That's for sure. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Unfortunately, I'm not as familiar with Sturges as I probably should be. I mean, I've heard of some of his other movies. I just haven't really gotten into them. But yeah, I mean, I know I, I don't remember when I first saw this movie. It was about it was at least twenty years ago, I think. But uh, I, I, yeah, this this is just a delightful one, and it's it's one that you do kind of inter you're are kind of curious as to how you could do it now. But also, it's one of those movies where I'm not sure if you could because of social media, because yeah, I mean, obviously, like because I mean, obviously, if you wanted to. You know, if you want social media is so ubiquitous that like nobody's not going to recognize him. Like at that at the time, you're not there aren't as many Hollywood 
filmmakers are going to be yeah obviously remember what they look like and i so i think that's part of why he feels like he could get away with it but i i love uh i i forgot how much of a delight veronica lake is in this movie she plays a she she plays somebody who came to hollywood wanting to be an actress and is kind of on the way out she wants to be out of there so she ends yeah. up going with McRae when he tries to restart his experiment. And I I love when they first get out there. You know, one of the one of the thing, you know, she they like they kind of turn off like actual hobos riding the rails, you know, with yeah. their with their uncertainty of what to do and they're trying to interact with them. And then there's somebody who says calls them amateurs, and I just couldn't help but laugh at that because of the fact yeah. that like, they're people can read them right away. <clears throat> and it's kind of like you know, you, you when that line is said, it, it's like you know the audience. It's like oh, you know, you know, you know, Joe, you're in, you're in for a ride because I think he thinks that like it's this is just going to be an easy kind of thing. They're like, okay, I'm just going to get out there and discover, you know, like I'm just basically going on from information, but. You know, while well, on this journey, he discovers his humanity. And yeah. I think that uh, that's important because it's like, you know, he sees how, you know, the other half lives and how, you know, how it's tough. And that, uh, you know, while wanting to make a kind of a socially conscious film, he, maybe he comes to the realization that these people need at the time. Chaplin and you know Preston Sturges and those kinds of movies like the escapism and that's the escapism of movies whether it's a comedy or Hitchcock a mystery or you know or anything like that I mean that's it's the beautiful thing about you know again why we why we go to the movies mm -hmm. yeah and I I like that you know this this movie like you know we were you you mentioned some uh movies that poke fun of Hollywood that satirize Hollywood. I, I think the one that this one kind of reminds me of is Lisa's first modern day is State Maine. And, and oh, I mean, yeah. like Joel McRae's character feels very much akin to the Philip Seymour Hoffman character in that movie where it's like yeah. they're wanting to do something pure, they're wanting to do something authentic, but it's like at the same time they, they kind of have to be shown to realize there's more, you know, what you're doing, you're not supposed to be doing reality. There's always going to be a certain amount of escapism that goes into filmmaking. And yeah. so unless you're making a documentary, you're not going to be doing something wholly authentic. And people don't want that. And I love that you have the moment where he's, you know, it's like he's at, at near the end. And it's the one part that I'm not sure really works is, the part where he gets amnesia and they think that he's dead. Now that part I think <laughs> is very funny, but he ends up in a chain gang and uh, yeah. he he ends up on he ends up working in a prison. He ends up and he works and he goes to a movie night and he sees the impact on the audience, the people who he's trying to get to know of the escapist movies that Hollywood has to offer. And mm -hmm. it's it's just it's 
I'm not sure if the amnesia thing works completely, but for that part alone, I and you know the the way he gets back to being himself is like yeah, that's that's kind of a bit that's kind of a bit loopy. But honestly, it's it's the part where you have to kind of give away to the fact that it's a movie. You know, you're not going to. There's not really going to be an elegant, serious way of going through this. You have to kind of be do something silly in order to, in order to, uh, bring something like that out. And maybe that's Sturge's intention. I've always I've always wondered if, like, you know, with that, that if that was Sturge's intention, like, uh, in, in the writing and the directing of the uh, of the piece, but. Uh, now it's one that anyone who hasn't who hasn't seen it or seen any of his uh, films, like The Great McGinty or The Lady Eve or Christmas in July, uh, there. Which actually, I think he did all of those movies. I think he did these four movies. I, I don't know if he did them all around the same year, but like, because he just he, like churned he, them out. He, yeah, I mean, he was. I was looking at his credits, and I was shocked that he really, he really did not have that long of a career. Like, um, but at the same time, you, you look at how much he did do in a span of like 20 years and it's, it's, let's see, uh, looking at, yeah, I mean, basically from 1940 to 1955 was his career. And he started out with the great McGinty Christmas in July, the lady even Sullivan's travels. And then his, and then his, you know, output became a little bit less regular. But at the same time, I mean, from the 40s and 50s, like, he was the vast majority of his films. And he only did one movie in 1950 and uh, one movie in 1955. And that's right. basically it. But, um, yeah, and he didn't even start writing until... Well, no, he he did write, yeah, he he did more writing than he did uh, than they did directing, but um, mm-hmm. yeah, I mean, you you see him as a director in this, and I know uh, Sullivan's Travels is uh, where did I I did I see this on Criterion Channel? I think I might have seen this on Criterion Channel, uh, or HBO Max, but I know it's and it is available on the in the Criterion Collection, if you want to pick it up, it's really just a delightful film. There's, it really is. It, it's a it's a wonderful uh, cast that he put together for this movie, and you know, it, if you uh, if if you want if you're a fan of movies about making movies, this is definitely a really good one. And I like that it's a movie about making movies that never gets to the making of the movie. And yeah. I, I really kind of enjoy that. Uh, but it's still about filmmaking, and it's still about what drives filmmakers to want to make movies. But, yeah, it's it's absolutely a delight. I, I just really loved revisiting it. And, um, yeah, it's, 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 it's worth... Uh, it's definitely worth checking out. Mm-hmm. So uh, we are going to continue with probably the... with easily the most well-known film of these three... Uh, it is one of the two truly all-time classic films from Ilya Kazan. It is the Oscar winner for Best Picture, and it stars Marlon Brando, Carl Madden, 
Lee J. Cobb, Eva Marie Sane, and Rod Steiger. It is on the waterfront. And mm. I mean, this is, you know, you've no doubt, chances are you've heard, you've seen clips of the I could have been a contender scene between Brando and yeah. Steiger in this film, or you might have seen clips of Brando and Eva Marie Saint. This is a film that is acknowledged for its greatness, but it's also somewhat of a controversial film in the sense that Kazan made it as a response to those who criticize him for naming names to the uh, HUAC committee during the McCarthy era. And he's been very, he was very upfront about it the entire time. I mean, if you're familiar, if you're an Oscar watcher of the past 30 years, I mean, no doubt one of the memories you probably have is when Ilya Kazan got an honorary Oscar and you had as many people not clapping for him in the, in the, uh, auditorium as we're clapping for him mm -hmm. and uh you you know it's like this is this is a movie of tremendous power and profundity i think when it comes to when it comes to the complicated nature of right and wrong and in, in life you know i mean this is this is a film about unions and corruption and terry malloy brando's character is a character who he he finds himself basically on the docks and he's basically he he had dreams of being a prize fighter but he basically kind of had to give those up at a certain point and he's basically a dock worker and uh one day he is asked to talk to a co-worker of his and convince a co-worker of his to go talk to uh, people who work for the union boss Johnny Friendly played by Lee J. Cobb and the the friend is murdered and it turns out they were the brother of Eva Marie Saint's character and the film basically goes through the con the concept of conscious and whether Brando's and whether Terry Malloy will uh, do the right thing and rat on the corrupt nature of L.J. Cobb's character or whether he'll uh, stay, you know, just somebody who witnesses what's going on without saying anything and just not wanting to rock the broads. And it's it's just a, every time you watch this movie, it's just such a, tremendous film to watch well and this is the this is a movie that like you know actors uh always kind of reference as like the one of the actors movies i mean not just for brando but for carl malden and lee j cobb and rod steiger and even marie saint and you know just uh you know um and i mean this there, there are from as far as an american movie this might be one of the most perfect because yeah. it's so perfectly acted, perfectly written, but Schulberg, you know, based on a series of articles about, you know, crimes on the uh, on the docks that was written in 1948, that, um, you know, there were, like you were saying, like, you know, a series of corruptions and, you know, mob goings on. And, 
you know, and, and it still packs a punch from 19, from, from 1954. And it still packs a punch, just like the stories, because it, it's just, like you said, crisis of conscience. This is a guy who, who he, he had a shot to be someone and he blew it. And this, this is like another chance, a rite of passage, another chance for him to do it. And he knows that not only is his life in danger, but even Marie Saint's character's life, the, his brother, uh, Rod Steiger, who's kind of Johnny Friendly's, uh, you know, consigliere, I guess you could say, his life is, and then, but then, you know, the, 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 the Carl Malton character, he's like the conscience, you know, the, yeah. the tough love conscience. And it's just, um, there's not a false note in no. this in this film and uh at you know as kind of like a companion piece to this if any if any of our listeners ever get a chance if you ever get a chance to read or see oh god i just blanked on the arthur miller play, a view from the bridge arthur miller's a view from the bridge at around the same time arthur miller was doing research on the play and he was you know about the crime on the docks and his play takes a different attack on um on it and but it, if it, it's a wonderful companion piece because both of them both pieces deal in the same error and in the same uh you know of course with immigration and all of that and just with uh you know the crimes that were going on down there it's uh it's really uh it's really 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 uh compelling i should mention years ago the Carl Malton character, Father Barry, is based on a real priest named Father John, uh, Father John Coughlin. Well, I actually played Father John Coughlin on like, uh, like a television reenactment thing. And it was uh, on A&E. And it was really fun to read about the real guy. You know, in the movie, like Carl Malton was like played kind of like not a, a gentle, kind priest. He was like a guy that was ready to, to scrap. Yeah. Well, the real guy was 10 times more scrappier than that. He would get into fist fights and, uh, you know, it, it, uh, Carl Malton, like, uh, and if, I think, and I think the father John was actually on set when they were, when they were filming. So Carl Malton, uh, had him, uh, as a, as a reference, which was uh, great to have, but it's just interesting. Whenever I come back to this uh, film into these characters, I always think of that and how, how much fun, well not how fascinating it was to read about that period and about all of that, uh, of, of what happened. Yeah. Um, that that's, that's fascinating. I, I, I'm glad that you have that. Uh, I'm glad that you have that insight that you can share because I, I, it's been, it's been about nine, ten years, I think, since, since I'd seen this last. Um, it's, it's been a while, but it's one of those movies that, when, when I, I do, I do agree with you to a large extent. When you know that, to this is very much a perfect film in a lot of ways, and um, I had forgotten how. You know, I had forgotten how critical to the film Carl Malden's character is, Father Brown. Yeah. And I I love how much, you know, because you're right, he's he's somebody who Father Barry's 
uh, etched as somebody. He's not. He he's not going to just try to be what we typically think of as a noble priest who really is going to try to just try pick away at Terry's conscience to get him to do the right thing. He's somebody who he he could beat the crap out of. Terry Malloy, if he wanted to, they if they he, got he gets a shot in, yeah. Carl Malden gets a shot in in there, and it's well, he's kind of like a priest, but also I think in another life he would have been a cop, yeah. And I think like uh, you know because, uh, but he uh, it's, it's kind of like he said, the docks are my church, and he calls everybody out, mm-hmm. and he's willing to put his his life on the line. I mean, uh, and that's the beautiful thing about this movie is that. Every character in the film, you see the moment where, like, they, like, you, you really see who they are. I mean, yeah. Rod Steiger, of course. I mean, like, you know, in, in the in the cab scene, everybody talks about Brando and Brando was great, but Rod Steiger, he gives just as good. I mean, uh, because he is willing. I mean, I, mean, I don't want to spoil, but he he's willing to, like, you know, make a drastic decision to in many ways save himself, but he yeah. knows that it's, he said, he knows that, uh, he can't do it. And, uh, and of course, and Lee J Cobb, Lee J Cobb, I can watch Lee J Cobb. And I mean, that's the thing is every one of these performances there, it's all an acting school. And then Martin Balsam, I think it's one of his first movies. He pops in there really, really briefly. Fred Wynn, Mm-hmm. Is, uh, is there Fred Gwynn pops up? I think he's one of uh, Johnny Friendly's, uh, uh, you know, hoods. I guess you could say. I mean, I, you'd always pick up Fred Gwynn because he's probably the tallest. Mm-hmm. Yeah, <laughs> but um, yeah, this movie, this movie, that's one of the things that is so extraordinary about this film is that this could have very easily been a simple morality tale where it's like. Corruption is bad, and it it does have that point, but also sees why you also see why people are might be afraid to stand up to corruption. Yeah, and you kind of understand it, even if you wouldn't necessarily make that choice for yourself. You understand why somebody who's needing a living wage for whatever reason might do that. And I and you're you're right about Charlie's choices after in that taxi cab because of the fact that he has a choice he has to make. It's like is is he going to let his brother take the fall knowing that's what's going to happen or is he going to make a sacrifice to show his brother what why he matters so much to him they both have a chance you know the what the cab scene shows is that they both have an opportunity to be to be human beings yeah. i mean uh you know and it's uh i mean again like sullivan's travels this is very much a movie of, of self-discovery as well i mean uh and the thing is you know for for Terry Malloy, you know, it it may have taken that, uh, you know, the love of of Edie, the Eva Marie Saint character, who's 
I think she was 18. I think she was 19 when, uh, this, and even where he's 98 years old, still, still, this do, was, still this kicking. Was, and this was her first role too. And I and mean, won, won the Academy Award. And, yeah. uh, I mean, this, you know, I mean, it's, uh, and this was, you know, for Brando, this was Brando at the height of his, you know, he had that first, those first couple of years when he did The Men and Streetcar Named Desire, Viva Zapata, Julius Caesar, uh, this film, of course, and uh, where he just, all of those performances are just extraordinary. I mean, they are acting schools. I mean, uh, and then, you know, after around 1957, and like you know, when, when Mutiny on the Bounty, when he stopped working with Kazan, I don't think Brando was ever really the same as um, as an actor because Kazan yeah. had his number. Mm-hmm. Kazan had a lot of actors' numbers. I mean, uh, Gregory Peck told a really interesting story about when they worked together on uh, Gentleman's Agreement. Gregory Peck kind of resisted. Um, you know, because Ilya Kazan as a director would like, you know, get, you know, get close to you and like ask you about your personal, you know, feelings and life and stuff like that. And apparently on the making of that film, Gregory Peck was very resistant to that. Yeah. 30 odd years later, uh, Gregory Peck, uh, you know, he had why he had rewatched Gentleman's Agreement again. And he then realized what Kazan was trying to do. And he realized that there, and he thought that there were some things that was missing in his performance that maybe if he had listened to Kazan, maybe there are things that could have been brought out. And it's, yeah. it's like, that's, that's the kind of, I mean, Kazan was like, I guess the first of what you would call an actor's director in the tradition of, you know, directors who followed like Sidney Lamette or Mike Nichols or Martin Scorsese or, uh, you know, many, many others. But Kazan was probably because he and any actor who ever worked with him, whether it be Natalie Wood or Warren Beatty, Brando, of course, um, you know, they always hailed him as, as he, he, he had your number. Yeah. He had, he had, he had a way of digging inside and getting something from you that, um, that you may not have thought that you were capable of delivering. Now, as far as, you know, you know, the controversy around it, naming names and things like that. I mean, I, I mean, I, mean, I, I, I really, I don't know. You know, like, I don't, I, I don't know what kind of pressure he was up against, you know, uh, you know, at, at that time. I mean, sadly, you know, he went to his grave with uh, just a lot of, you know, we, you always just have a lot of questions, but yeah. uh, you know, you try to put it into perspective and understand what they may have been going through. Cause it, I'm sure it wasn't easy. Oh no, and but, especially especially the way that the uh, the climate of the time as the Cold Wars getting started, you know, I mean, communism has always been for has always been a bad word in in American life, and uh, you know, the that's one of the worst things you can be called in American politics as a communist, and. You know, it's it's so it's one of those things where it's like, did he make the right choice? I mean, that's that's certainly up to him to decide. That really, yeah. is, really, none of us can judge that for ourselves. You know, we we just we just hope that if we just hope to make the best decision for ourselves in situations 
like that. And I mean, you know, one of the things that's so it's it's funny you you compared you you talked about it in comparison to Sullivan's Travels as being a film of self discovery, which it certainly is for Ter- Terry Malloy, but it's also in a way it's also kind of the type. In a way, it feels like the type of film that Joel McRae's character in Sullivan's Travels wants to make. That's authentic, that's true. Wow, that's honest, funny. Yeah, honest, authentic, but at the same time, you can tell the Hollywood flourishes, the filmmaking flourishes are there, but this movie does feel authentic, and that's yeah. a big part of. Kazan's approach with the actors and how natural he was able to get those performances out of those actors. This doesn't, nobody feels like they're overdoing in this movie. Everybody is calibrated just right to where we can believe that these characters are people who would exist in real life. Well, and he, and at the end of the film, you know, without giving anything away, the, one of the things that I always wonder, I, I always wonder at the end, how long is it going to be until somebody gets Terry? Because yeah. he won today. Yeah. But, you know, Johnny Friendly, he's a big... And, you know, when it comes to money, I mean, he may have won the day, but I I don't think he wins the war. Yeah. But But the good thing is, is that maybe even if something does happen to him, maybe he's given the other people a chance to, an opportunity to stand up. Exactly. Yeah. And uh, I, I would be remiss if I didn't bring up the score by Leonard Bernstein, which I forget how, which I completely forgot how tremendous it is. It's funny because of the fact that I, I've, I've listened to Bernstein a lot and I even performed Bernstein at, in high school for part of our marching show, not from on the waterfront, but from West Side Story and from some of his other works. But, um, you know, the, the thing that is, the thing that's interesting about Bernstein's score for this is, you know, you listen to his score for this and it certainly, it definitely gets to the heart of this film and what this film is about the corruption, but also the the underdog spirit of this film. But you can also hear echoes of things like Jerry Goldsmith will explore later in movies like Chinatown and L.A. Confidential. And you can hear that echo of this score in those scores. And it's, it's yeah. really... It's, it's one where Bernstein did not work a lot in film, but when he did work in film, it it, it was something special. Mm-hmm. No, it, 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 it really does. And it, and it adds so much. Like, uh, that's the thing is, you know, I mean, the, the film is, it's, it's put together, like, it's just, it's just stitched together so wonderfully. And every, every piece just, uh, you know, it's, it just, it's just a perfect movie. It, it's it's a perfect um, one of the most perfect American movies ever made. Yeah. And and if it, and if it was the only film Brando had ever done in his life, it, it would still be considered. Yeah. I think top ten of the greatest per- film performances ever. And mm. you know, and all of them: Rod Steiger, Lee J. Cobb, and 
Eve Marie Saint and all of them are, uh, you know, they're all up there uh, with him. And of course, you know, at uh, Kazan at the helmet, of course, the gem of a script by uh, Bud Schulberg. Yeah, the script is, I, I forgot how economical the the movie is. I forgot it was under two hours. You you would think with a story like this, you would think, it, oh, it's got to be at least over two hours. No, it's not even an hour 50. But now, it's, it's so much is packed within that amount of time. You just, it doesn't stop moving. And it well, doesn't stop throwing you curveballs in the way that it shows this evolution of Terry. Yeah, and, it really is, you know, and like just, because he's kind of, um, you know, he's kind of like tough guy, but like very childlike. Yeah. Well, you see, and the thing that Brando, the vulnerability, mm-hmm. and I think Weedy brings that out, the vulnerability, and that like opens him up and makes him more of a, of a well-rounded person. And of course, also, you know, the tough guy who, adores uh you know the pigeons yeah you know like all of the like there is a gentleness to him a gentleness that was always there but he hides it from charlie and from johnny and like uh and you know it's uh because in that world with those you don't you don't show vulnerability because if you show vulnerability that means that there's a good chance that you're probably going to uh rat yeah yeah and uh this you know it's funny because of the fact that we've talked a lot about brando and if you're only familiar with his later work from like the Godfather on, like you, you will no doubt know a lot of the stories about him having just extraordinary, you know, just absolutely extraordinary demands on gang filmmakers to do what he wants to do uh, for, for the privilege to work with him. But, you know, the fact of the matter is it's like, even if you look at something like Don Corleone in The Godfather, like that that sense of vulnerability is still there. Oh, yeah. I mean, even through all the actor's tricks that he does in that movie, even something like Kurtz, which is as menacing a character as anybody's ever put on screen, you can understand... We, You can see the sympathy in his character. You can see the sympathy in his uh Dorel in Superman. And yeah. it's, it's just really kind of extraordinary how even even when he, he stopped being the matinee idol of like the fifties and you know, this period, he never stopped being a great actor. He was always a great actor. Yeah, he um the facility, the, 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 the instrument was, was, his instrument was extraordinary. I mean, Anthony Quinn said, I, I admire Marlon's talent, but I don't admire what it takes for him to, you know, the, the, the emotional pain. If you, yeah. it, it, the wonderful book, conversa- I think it's Conversations with My Mother, uh, you really get a sense of, uh, and there's a wonderful documentary called, I think, Listen to Me, Marlon, that gives you a, a, a really glimpse a glimpse into you know who Brando was because of course there's always the myth and the stories he in interviews like he was an interesting interview because he liked to deflect and keep you on your toes he would you know and uh, but the work 
you, you can't deny that uh, in this performance and, uh, you know, and, and many, it's, it's why people always say whenever there's a discussion of who's the greatest actor of all time, his name is usually at the top of the list. Yeah, and you can definitely you can definitely understand it. I mean, especially if you again, if you if you take away the baggage of Brando as a a personality and just yes. look at the work and you just see that he he created indelible performances through to the end. And he was always committed to the craft even if it took it take takes him in places that completely go overboard like in even something like as dreadful as the island of dr moreau like, <laughs> like it's it's you can you can still feel the uh the energy coming off of his performance oh i think he's having i think he's having the best time because i, I it, it's a it's a definitely it's a it's a strange movie and a strange performance but i think he is have it looks like he's having the time of his life yeah. i mean uh but uh well that's you know the thing is like you know to be on i mean people would always describe like you know him on set like uh you know they had video of him on superman and just like just people watching how he would how he would prepare and like you know how he would do everything and it's just no, he, he's extraordinary, but he, I don't. I don't know if he's a nut. That uh, I think you know. I mean, he passed away what almost twenty years ago, yeah. and uh, the fact that our people are still trying to, you know, dissect the man, connecting with the man and the uh, and the actor, um, they'll be talking about him, you know, for a hundred a hundred years after we're gone. So yeah, uh, yeah and that's that makes him extraordinary. So we are going to close this three set of three with a film that I had actually never seen before, but I had heard about. It is oh. uh, 1957 Sweet Smell of Success from director Alexander McKendrick. It stars Burt Lancaster as J.J. Hunsecker, who is a Broadway columnist who uses his power... To, who uses the power of the pen to basically make or break careers. But we one of the things that is interesting about this film is that Hunsecker is certainly the character that we leave feel, thinking the most about, but the movie is told through the perspective of Sidney Falco, who's a press agent played by Tony Curtis. And he is dealing with a situation that Hunsecker wants him to try to deal with in terms of breaking up the relationship between Susan Hunsecker and a jazz guitarist. And mm -hmm. it feels like it's basically just sport for J.J. in a large way, because especially since the jazz guitarist seems to be an up-and-coming star, wouldn't J.J. want to promote that type of relationship for him it's all about the power and i love that this film is taking the ideas of noir and this style of film noir and putting it in a world of publicists and musicians and columnists because it's it's giving us a 
a seedy side to celebrity culture in a lot of ways. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I mean, uh, Lancaster, you know, the character of J.J. Hunsecker is based on, not even loosely based on Walter Winchell. It just, it just come right out and say, this guy's like Walter Winchell. And, you know, he could, you know, or Walter Winchell or, you know, guys like, um, oh God, who's the, uh, the one that... Um, Citizen Kane was based on the... Uh, oh, William Randolph first. Thank you, thank you. You know, people who had the power in those days to destroy, uh, whether you were successful or up and coming, yeah. uh, the power to destroy with just a word. And they took a delight in it. And it, it, the thing about this movie is that I don't think Burt Lancaster was originally going to act in it. He, in his company, Hecht Lancaster, they produced the film. And the studio wanted Lancaster to play the part because, of course, he was a big star. I think, actually, who originally Lancaster wanted to play the part was Robert Vaughn. And Robert Vaughn wasn't – I think he had gone into the armed services at the time. But uh, that would have been interesting because Robert Vaughn, fantastic actor. Not a bankable name, but, uh, you know, he would have – that would have been – that would have been a really menacing term. But Lancaster – I think this is one of his best performances because he is icy cold. There's none of that, you know, Burt Lancaster was a very athletic, like, you know, like, you know, very big bravado. Uh, and this is just a very quiet, menacing, and he's, and he's terrifying. Yeah. Uh, and just, you know, uh, and a man not to be messed with. And my favorite line in the movie, when he, he turns to uh, Tony Curtis, is just, Cigarette me, Sydney. And it's just like he knows that Sydney Falco will do anything to be on his good side. And Tony Curtis, equally, also, I think, also one of his best uh, film performances. And like even when I've seen, uh, it was one of his first ones. It was, it was one of his first ones. And he's, he's tremendous. And it's like, oh, it's you, tremendous. You, you see him, it, it's funny because obviously, like, like most people, I know him best for I know Tony Curtis best from some like it odd, and he's wonderful in that movie. But you also see one of the things that's interesting about Sydney in this he he's the one who really has the 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 journey the self discovery the journey of self discovering. This is that how much of how much is he finally going to take from JJ before he cracks. And that's really how much is he willing to go to please this, uh, to please him? I mean, it's like, are, are, it's, it's almost like he is where his journey is going. It's kind of like, you know, the beginnings of where like, you know, Charlie and on the waterfront, like he's in the beginnings of like, Sydney, you're still, so, you're still a human being, but if yeah. you go through with this, you're, you're just, you know, you know, you don't have a soul. Really, yeah. Or it's kind of like you're you're no better than than Hunsaker, mm-hmm. and and I I know that the film was not a success when it came out, um, and, and Lancaster was not happy. The, the script was actually written by uh, the playwright Clifford Odets, and I think uh, when the film came out, I think you know Lancaster heaped all of the blame on. Uh, Clifford Odets, but it's it's a fantastic script. But this movie is it's ahead of its time, and maybe yeah. that's why it didn't do great when it came out in 1957. Because 
it really lays on the cynicism, like anything, you know, with, uh, you know, that kind of, you know, with journalism in that world. And uh, I mean, this is one, I mean, they made a Broadway musical of it in the early 2000s. So uh, the story still uh, speaks, uh, spoke volumes. I think it was 2002. It was John Lithgow who played the Huntsecker part. But um, so it still resonates. But I think maybe around the 1990s, this this movie started, you know, getting like, uh, I don't know if cult status, but then it, it started to be regarded as uh, the classic that I think it deserves to be considered. Yeah, and I know I first became familiar with it in uh, because Scorsese talks about it in uh, Personal Journey with Martin Scorsese through American movies. He talks about this this film uh, for a bit when he's talking about iconoclastic filmmakers. And this is one that I definitely think is fits within that vein because of the fact that it doesn't, it, it really, it, it's interesting to see how it takes film noir and it's, it's something as seedy as detour, but also has the same polish of, something like we'll see later in like Chinatown and LA confidential oh, yeah. the way stylistically it does as is phenomenal cinematography by James Wong how who won an Oscar for this film and uh you know the music by Elmer Burns got it is is tremendous like I I was when I was watching this I couldn't help but wonder whether Orson Welles might have been inspired by this bit when he came to making touch of evil because this this film kind of deals with a lot of the same thematic ideas of touch of evil even in a completely different uh even in a completely different perspective in the ways that you know people are having to make choices as to how corrupt are you going to let society make you before you finally decide that you've had enough and yeah. you know, you you think about Wells, you think about um, the the character Menzies and Touch of Evil is kind of on that journey in that movie, where it's like he he loves Quinlan, but at a certain point he has to make a decision as to whether he's going to let Quinlan ruin any more lives or not. Well, and the thing about movies like this and Touch of Evil and even Sunset Boulevard is that. They're they're a gamble because yeah. they're they're movies that do not have a uh, they're they're certainly not uh, happy movies but they really are I guess accurate like they're 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 true like if if you're going to a movie to uh, if you're going to a movie to escape from the real world these are probably not the kinds of movies that you want to go to because th- a movie like this would probably scare you because it's like, my God, like there, like there's JJ Hunseckers out there. I mean, today, my God, there, there are JJ Hunseckers everywhere. Oh, this so one, this is one that could easily be remade and redone for the modern era because of the fact that we see it all, we see it all the time. And I mean, there's so many more people who are more volatile than JJ Hunsecker who don't even have, who who are so far gone in their sense of consciousness that they they just 
there there's no getting through to them. They they just will destroy anything and anyone who gets in their way, regardless. Well, it's yeah, it's no no so, like the TMZ. I mean, like you know, like none of them have. Uh, but then again, I, I wouldn't call them. I mean, it's 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 an interesting question, you know, like of. Like I, I actually think JJ Hunsecker is a legitimate journalist. I wouldn't call any of the, the, I wanted the words I can't say. Yeah. Uh, but like, of I can't, you know, I wouldn't call any of them legitimate journalists. They're just bottom feeders. Like yeah. I think JJ Hunsecker. There may have been a time where like he's a legit journalist, and the way that he, because that it, it equals dollar signs. And it equals, uh, he's got a byline on his, uh, you know, he gets, you know, I mean, that, that's what, that's what, you know, pays the bills for him, but. Uh. Yeah. Yeah, I mean, you definitely do feel like Hunsecker is somebody who, Hunsecker's definitely somebody who feels like he, like you're, like you said, and I do agree with that, that he, he was a legitimate journalist but he's also somebody who came to realize at a certain point that my my words carry weight. Yeah. And when when you realize that moment and you realize, well, I can make or break careers and you kind of start to decide you want you would rather break people's lives than make them, that's where he's at. And you know, it, it's one of those baffling questions where it's like, why would... Well, it's kind of like, who hurt you? <laughs> well, why... <laughs> who why, hurt you? Well, that. the thing is, it's like, one of the... That's one of the things I, I love that this is ultimately a story about J.J. crossing a bridge that he shouldn't be crossing by deciding that his sister's happiness is not important to him in his happiness or having that control over her. Yeah. That's the thing. Hunsecker, it's control. He controls, you know, he's the puppet master and yeah. it's, and it's, it's, you know, there's that wonderful line in wall street. Like when Charlie Sheen asks, like why, why wreck, why wreck things? Because it's wreckable because there, there's a little bit of joy. I think that Hunsecker gets from, doing that it, it's it's like the kingmaker you know like i get to i get to decide who lives who dies or you know career-wise or or otherwise i mean uh he's not he's not afraid to get his hands dirty and that's what and he does it you know he's kind of like a crime boss in that way and i think lancaster i mean could have you know you could have easily burt lancaster was known in his career for kind of overdoing it from time to time here he did and I, I just, I think he just found the right notes, just the right rhythms uh, for this character. And, uh, and it works. It just, it really, really, really works. Yeah, it's, it's absolutely a tremendous performance. And it's funny because of the fact that maybe it's probably because of the initials, but I couldn't help but think that maybe Stanley and Jack Kirby, when they were creating J. Jonah Jamerson for Spider-Man, <laughs> were probably inspired by Hunsecker because he very much has that same personality of like, look, I don't care if you're doing good, you're clearly doing something bad. I'm going to expose you and I'm going to get rid of you. I, that, that kind of, that, that probably, that sounds on point that, that they would do that. Yeah. 
but uh, now, I mean, it's uh, it's it's amazing that like you know you know you think of a movie that came out in 1957 that audiences really didn't know what to to do with. I mean, even I, I remember in Tony Curtis's book, like he said, like he said this when this movie failed at the box office, he said it was one of the heartbreaks of his of his career because he thought that this was the film that was going to get him an Oscar and you know, yeah. all that. And, um, and he's fantastic and in the movie too. Like he, he really we, is. We spent a lot of time talking about Lancaster, but yeah, Curtis is terrific in this film. Well, and for him, you know, his character is kind of like what we were saying. It's like, he, he still has an opportunity. Yeah. Like he, 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 but he, like he wants to be, at the level of, of where Huntsecker is. And, you know, I remember watching the movie again, like, you're just like, oh, you know, you just kind of wonder, it's like, God, do, 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 you, do, do you really think it's that good? Like yeah. being there, like, you know, like better to create than destroy. And mm-hmm. it's just like, but that's, that's the climate. That's the business because that's what sells. It's the old, the old line. If it bleeds, it leads. I mean, like nobody wants to hear, you know, news stories about, uh, good things happening, only the bad stuff. Yeah, exactly. Um, no, and I, I, yeah, if you, I, I know this one's on Tubi, so uh, if you, or, and it's on the, like, all three of these are part of the Criterion Collection, so, you know, oh, yeah. feel free, I know that's how I watched Sweet Smell of Success. I, I blind bought the uh, Criterion like last that's a dangerous year. channel. That is a that's a dangerous channel. And uh, I I I just am so glad I did because it's a it's a tremendous movie. But yeah, all three of these movies are absolutely worth watching. And I I love that one of the thing one of the reasons why I wanted to do at least Sweet Smell of Success and Small Sullivan's Travels is because yeah, film fans will under will have seen these and or at least heard of these and know the reputation on the waterfront most people heard of and know as an absolutely great film but i love that sullivan's travels and sweet smell of success have had this rejuvenation of their uh reputations over the years and to where you can look look at them along the same lines of an on the waterfront in terms of how they approach their subjects and why they are great in their own respects and that's they, one of the they go all the way yeah they don't uh, they don't shy away from the subject matter which you know is uh, you think about like for the time like it may have been uh, a taboo in, in yeah. some respect but uh, they don't they don't they go all the way and this is the other reason why i wanted to do this series because of the fact that now we do I want to obviously talk about films that are canonize unassailable classics that I love, but I also wanted to talk about some of these other films that are were just might just be underneath the surface for people who are not film fans. Mm-hmm. But make them but show them watch these and see why they've gotten the that stature the same way of a on the waterfront and a citizen Kane or treasure of Sierra Madre or sunset Boulevard. And to show that the reason these movies have gotten that reputation is because of the fact that they were made by filmmakers who understood what they were doing when they made them 
and they made them to endure. And I mean, I, I think all, all three of these are just as fresh and just as interesting to watch as they were when they came out. And yeah, sometimes absolutely. even more so to a certain extent. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, Sweet Smile of Success is a movie that, like, uh, you know, I, I suppose it could be remade, but I don't know if it would be done with the same style yeah. and panache. And, I mean, like, uh, I mean, and, like, you know, we have, I mean, you know, imagine, like, a Harvey Levin, you know, like, J.J. Hunsecker. <laughs> no one would go see the movie, you know. It's yeah. like, uh, but, uh, no, I mean, I, I, I had not seen Sweet Smell of Success. Again, I probably hadn't seen it in 25 years. and uh, But it's one that always... I did a play about 20 years ago where I played a cynical reporter and I got myself a pair of J.J. Hunsecker glasses. And like, uh, and it's weird. Like, uh, you know, you got the suit and like the, the glasses, like it, it, something happened. And it's yeah. like, it, you know, it's, what a great performance really... Uh, inspires you like that but uh i i always think of i always think of fondly of, of lancaster and, and this and tony curtis and you know mark milner who i i believe just passed away in the last year but um no it's uh it's a really really uh extraordinary film yeah it is um well uh we we've we've come to the end of this uh episode of established classics and it's always Tim, as always, it's it's a pleasure to talk to you. I know we're, I want to do at least one more of this series this year, and then I know we've also talked about talked about a uh, filmmaker whom I know both you and I greatly admire, John Frankenheimer. I definitely want to do that conversation oh, yeah. this year because I I I've been excited ever since we started talking about that possibility. He's uh, an underrated an underrated director and, and talk about movies that stand the test of time that like, you know, like I mean, God, Manchurian candidate or seven days in May or seconds alone. I mean, just, you know, we could go, we could go hours on uh, John Frankenheimer. <laughs> yeah. And I cannot wait to do so with you. Uh, Tim, as always, thank you very much. Thank you, Brian. Always a pleasure. I'd like to thank Timothy J. Cox for joining me on the podcast. As always, it's always a lot of fun to, uh, talked movies with him and i i love that we've leaned into talking about classic movies with him because of the fact that i think he as an actor i think he has a lot to uh offer about what makes some of these classic movies so influential and uh so great and so that's part of the reason why i wanted to do this series with him it's gonna be it for this episode of the podcast uh, thank you very much for everybody who listens, regardless of where you listen, whether it's Good Pods, Apple, Google, or Spotify, or the Sonic Summit Podcast YouTube channel. Uh, thank you to everybody who subscribes at the Patreon. And once again, thank you very much for everybody who reads at www.sonic-cinema.com. Mm-hmm.